Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the University of Oxford, thinking about material text, the history of the book, um, the history of publishing. My name is Adam Smythe and I'm a university lecturer in the history of the book and I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Ian Gadd, or Ian as he's known to his friends. Ian is a professor of English literature at Bath Spa University and it's a beautiful sunny day. We just had a large lunch, haven't we? We did. And we thought what better to do after a large lunch on a sunny day, then to sort of celebrate and to mark the History of Oxford University Press, Volume 1, Beginnings to 1780, which Ian edited and has just come out. And I have to say, it's one of the most beautiful, it's a very large book, very heavy book. You can't put it in your jacket pocket very easily, but it's a beautiful, beautiful object. So congratulations, Ian. You, Thank you. You're pleased with it. Does it look how you thought it might look 10 years ago when it was first proposed to you as a scheme? I'm not sure I had a vision of the book in mind when I uh, was first asked about it. But no, it, it, is, it is a very pretty book. It has a fabulous dust jacket. Jacket. There is there's a little bit of a story in which I, I when I brought this in I, I, rather uh, uncomfortably I brought it into one of my third year undergraduate seminars and one of the things we do in in those seminars is a seminar on on the early modern or book history in the early modern period mm-hmm. and I always bring in a book usually an early modern book and we talk about its physical form and how that might how we might read that physical form and so I brought this in and I asked the question do you feel that this is a scholarly book and the the consensus was no really and and it was partly because it was too pretty ah and it was also, I think, partly because they, they thought a scholarly book was a cloth-bound monograph from the library yeah. that looked very earnest and didn't have pictures. Um, you should have been wearing your gown and hat as well. I, I, should, have, I should have been, I should have been. But it's a lot longer than I expected. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big book, well, perhaps not for the beach, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but we seem to be, I wanted to I'm asking him first of all about, we seem to be at a moment in the history of the book where, we, where we're getting big institutional histories um, appearing. Peter Blaney's history of the Stationers' Company, or the first half of the 16th century um, of that story, has just appeared, hasn't it, in big, mm-hmm. two big volumes, also from OUP, is that right? Or CUP? CUP. Sorry, lawyers. The other place. Um, and the, there's McKittrick's history of CUP, which came out in the 90s, was mm-hmm. it also? Mm-hmm. Are we thinking about the history of the book through the paradigm, do you think, of big institutional kind of corporate histories? Is that a, that a new way of talking about the history of the book? Is it a way of talking about the history of the book that you're particularly invested in? It's an approach I've adopted Mm -hmm. ever since I was a PhD student. My Mm -hmm. PhD uh, was on the Stationers' Company, Mm -hmm. and one of the things I wanted to do in that PhD was counter an understanding, or rather the assumptions that were made about how the English book trade operated. This is in the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm -hmm. um, That saw the book trade through or in terms solely of individuals mm-hmm. and saw the stationers company as well in some ways didn't really the, the, the existing narratives were presented the stationers company in a rather vague way as either a sort of agent of the state or as a closed shop full of um, capitalists or proto-capitalists but sort of missed the the social and the institutional mm-hmm. and the corporate side um, to that story mm-hmm. and so when I was asked to whether I'd be willing to take on the editing of this volume that was actually the thing that, that, that drew me to the project it was the the idea of being able to approach an organization and thinking about this thing both well thinking of it as a corporate entity as something that that that, it, that has an identity separate from the individuals who make it up but then also seeing how those individuals relate to one another yeah. and also how that whatever this thing is that, that becomes the university press how that then relates to other corporate bodies mm-hmm. um, but if you read if you read i mean say joseph moxon's mechanic exercises it has fabulous descriptions doesn't it 
or offers little tempting vignettes. So it's precisely the social corporate life of the, of the history of the book and the history of printing. These kind of feasts and these fines for kind of debauched, um, kind of dissolute modes of behaviour. So you, you, that, that does come across very strongly with Moxon. I just wanted to ask a kind of follow-up question to that, which was really also about, which was about the role then of, of individuals in, in the narrative, in the, in the story you're telling. Is it that you're, through this book, kind of moving away from the individual as the kind of way of organising the history of the book or the history of OUP. And I guess if we think of individuals for the history of um, Oxford University Press, we might be thinking about William Lord, who was Chancellor in the 1630s. I think mm-hmm. John Fell, who was the manager of the press in the 1670s. Yes, who effectively took on that role. Yeah. Yes. And then William Blackstone in the, in, the, in the 18th century. I mean, so Lord Fell and Blackstone would seem to be kind of key figures in the story. And they are in your book too, aren't they? But you're also, to some degree, moving away from that individual. <laughs> yes. Narrative. Yes, I don't want to overplay the, the the idea of it being a an institutional history. Part mm-hmm. of the part of what was fascinating about and 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 complicated about writing, or rather bringing together, I should I should say at this point that this this isn't my book. It is a it is a, a corporate book. It's yeah. a collaborative book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm simply the editor. But to come back to your point about the the role of these individuals, these individuals were absolutely critical to how the press, or what we come to think of as the press, emerged. And in part, what we wanted to do in the volume was set them into a proper context. So to recognise, for example, that, and I think this is one of the one area where the volume breaks genuinely uh, new ground, placing Lord's vision of the press in the context of his wider plans for the reform of the university mm-hmm. as an organisation in the 1630s. And Andrew mm-hmm. Hegarty, whose chapter uh, focuses on this, shows that, that they were of a piece. And actually to understand why Lord did the things he did and the ways in which he used the institutional structures, particularly the the university regulations, to establish, to put down in dictat how the uh, university press would run and who would run it and and so on. That story doesn't make sense unless you realise what Lord's uh, grander Mm -hmm. vision was Mm -hmm. and the way in which he was working in in terms of the larger organisation. And I think the same is true to an extent of Fell. So the history does place those men into, I hope, a more complicated context. But it also identifies, or at least gives more prominence to, other individuals. Yeah. Um, one of the things, one of the great things that the, the volume does, it, um, it has chapters, indeed chapters by you, on the relationship between Oxford and the London book trade. Mm-hmm. And also the Oxford and the, uh, Oxford and the international book trade. So mm-hmm. Could you say a little bit about... Oxford and London and, and how that relationship was going in the, in, the, in the early years. That was one of those areas where I thought I knew kind of narrative and then doing the research for the volume revealed that actually there was a, a much more complicated story to be told. It's very easy to think of, of, of Oxford as parochial, as inward-looking as far as the book trade is concerned and, and London is cosmopolitan but also full of rapacious booksellers who, who would want to sort of suppress or snuff out any competition from, from Oxford. And there, there, were, there are moments where the two, the where Oxford's Oxford's booksellers and London's booksellers come to uh, conflict. But what's what's interesting? One of my personal heroes in the in the volume is the the first man that we can call authoritatively a university printer, and that's Joseph Barnes, mm. who who establishes uh, himself or is appointed as university printer in 1584. And one of the reasons I consider him to be an interesting figure is that he's an existing bookseller in Oxford. He has no printing experience, and he takes this opportunity and he looks 
he, he tries to find a way of being able to, or he thinks about how can I be a successful publisher, because after all that's what the printing press gives him, the, the ability to publish books without having to go to London. How can I be a successful publisher of books as a university printer at the same time as the London trade are doing their thing. How do I find a niche? Mm-hmm. And he does. He, he tries various tactics in his initial... There's a petition that precedes his appointment that, that he is named in that talks about um, the possibility of him being granted very specific printing privileges, privileges to print certain kinds of works, which shows a canniness that he realises that if he can get legal authority to print certain lucrative works that that would then allow him to run a fairly successful publishing business. That doesn't come to pass, and so he has to try other things. And one of the interesting things about that that relationship, and this story is going to get a little technical, the the London book trade, the the organisation that dominates the London book trade at this time is the Stationers' Company, which you've already mentioned. And they have a system of controlling and regulating the rights that individual booksellers and printers have to publishing to publish books through a register that they, they maintain, the so-called uh, Stationers' Register. At that point, in the 1580s, the jurisdiction of that register extended only so far as the members of the trade, basically within London. So for somebody publishing books in Oxford, the register was of could not reach. And there are, there's some interesting... There's a, a, a nice little document from the 1580s, just after Barnes has uh, set up, where he pirates, to use the word that we would use now... Or he makes an, an unauthorised uh, reprint of a London book. And the, the London publisher in question can't do anything about it. So he sends up his somebody from his um, establishment to negotiate. Barnes says, OK, um, you can buy up the rest of my run, which uh, he does. And then as soon as the, uh, they return to London, Barnes brings out another edition. Mm. And actually, so there's, there's, there's a sense in which Barnes actually is able to operate reasonably well without... London, outside of London, but equally he has to have good relationships with London. He needs to be able to sell his books. Mm. And one of the interesting things to, to take a sort of step back is that in the, if you look at, say, the, 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 the way he was thinking about the London book trade in the 1580s, and then you look at how the university in the 1780s, at the end of this volume, are thinking about their relationship with London. They're operating within strikingly similar mm kinds of uh, um, contexts and they make similar decisions in that they realize that they need in some way to have somebody in London on their side somebody who's acting on their on their behalf and 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 I think Barnes's relationships with London some of which can, we, we, we managed to trace in this volume I think that there's more to be said about that the other thing that was a, a, a complete revelation to me and this is somewhere something that I'd like somebody else perhaps to to follow up listeners Yes. Note. Is that the university has its own legal court, the Chancellor's Court, which is available to all fellows and students, but it's also available to what were called privileged persons, people whose trades or crafts were um, of direct use to the university. Members of the Oxford book trade, for the most part, were considered to be privileged persons and so th- could, take, could use that court. And they used it to settle trade disputes. And so the Chancellor's Court records, which survive in the university archives here, there are about 300, two to 300 court cases over the period that the volume covers 
that involve members of the Oxford book trade. A proportion of those, not a huge number, but but uh, enough to be interesting, involve Londoners. And that, I think, also shows the extent to which one, can't, one shouldn't overstate the, 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 the sense of isolation for Oxford, the Oxford book trade or the sense that, they're, that, that, that they, London and Oxford are in, in a state of competition or rivalry. We need to think about the, the metaphorical X90 bus... Yes. In the 1580s. Yes. Taking yes. Yes. To, to Arch. Which, which, um, and I already mentioned this over lunch, but I, I this can consider this to be my first erratum. I noted in my introduction while I was rereading it today that the X90 bus equivalent, I managed to double the length, the likely length of the the journey. But, and Ian but, has been besieged by um, historians of travel um, <laughs> ever since. Ian, I wanted to ask also uh, the, one of the interesting tensions or, or kind of issues that comes out in in the in the volume is, is the degree to which we're talking about a learned press, a scholarly mm-hmm. press producing kind of a learned scholarly books and the degree to which it's something else and it's producing commercially driven bestsellers um, that wouldn't be called scholarly by any stretch of the imagination I mean is that a useful useful way of thinking about um, OUP and the history of, of OUP as, as sort of somehow navigating that learned scholarly versus commercial um, lucrative popular opposition yes and, and again that's one of the the assumptions that I had as I took on the project that this would be that that, that tension that conflict between the learned and the, and the commercial would be a kind of dominant one for the narrative. And and it is an important one for the narrative. But one of the things that, that surprised me was that the the press, although it produced some very learned books and books that the London trade wouldn't necessarily have, have published, it also published books that, although they were not runaway bestsellers, they were books that were not scholarly in a, in a, a formal sense. Some of them were for university consumption so catalogues of graduates there was a a little undergraduate book or a book that all uh, undergraduate students got which had a digest of the uh, university regulations and so on and those are printed in very large numbers but they're also they in the late um, 17th century they print uh, Lily's grammar they print mm. they produce Marshall's catechism and a few other works in the late 17th century that 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 were remarkably popular, and from that we can see that they're, they're books that are not traditionally scholarly. And then, of course, we have, and this is a, a sort of peculiar part of the history of, of both Oxford and Cambridge uh, University Press. There are at the very start of the, the, the very origins of, of university printing in both Oxford and Cambridge. At some point, there is a some kind of grant from the Crown that gives them the right to print. And in both cases, the, the, the form of words is something along the lines of to print all manner of books, which means technically they could print anything at Oxford and Cambridge. Now that's that, that's all well and good in Oxford or Cambridge, but if you are a London publisher who holds the right, say, to print Bibles or to print almanacs or to print other books that are covered by a royal privilege, you have a, a problem here because a, a royal privilege is now clashing with another royal privilege. In the 16th, early 17th century into the late 17th century, this never gets fully resolved, mm-hmm. um, and it's a source of, of legal conflict. The end is, is resolved by uh, a rather pragmatic fudge where the London privilege, privilege holders will pay Oxford and Cambridge a certain amount of money every year for them not to print certain kinds of work. But they were allowed to print certain uh, groups of work, so there are ones in the privileged side of the press, which are not necessarily scholarly, that are nonetheless important Oxford books. So the Bible is an obvious one. They're also allowed, Oxford is allowed to print its own almanac, although it's very unlike the almanacs in London, which were pocket books. These are grand, uh, um, single, or rather single-sided and sometimes very large uh, sheets with a, a great 
uh, engraving of some sort on the... Uh, they still survive to this day, don't they? They do. Porter's lodges up and down the... Uh, and uh, that was the one almanac that Oxford are allowed to produce. If they tried to do anything else, it would, it would get problematic. It would be wrong to think of the press purely as a learned press. The other side to this is that we, we have archival records for the university press from the mid from the 1660s onwards uh, and then detailed um, warehouse records from the 1690s onwards these allow us to uh, distinguish two types of books books that were published at the press at the cost of somebody external to the press or external to the university so a bookseller who might want to print something that um, either they just wanted it to come out at oxford or they needed access to particular exotic types that oxford had or whatever but these were not university books. These were not university press books in, in, in that sense. They could be scholarly, but equally they might not be. They were in, the 17th, in the 18th century, there were a lot of sermons that came out of uh, um, the university press. And those, we this is a term that we've adopted from um, previous scholars, uh, these are called authors' books, even though actually they could be paid for by um, other publishers. And then we have a much smaller category, much, much smaller, called delegates' books. And those are books that were approved by the delegacy, those, uh, the, the body that oversaw the management of the press, and they are, strictly speaking, books published at the cost of the university. And those are, for the most part, scholarly, but they represent a very small proportion. I'm inter- interested in institutional memory as, as a phenomenon. If we went to Great Clarendon Street and walked into OUP today, would we? is there still a sense in which the issues and, and personalities and developments <laughs> that you're talking about here are still part of that? institution is it is it still it's fell and lord and blackstone and, and barnes and all these other kind of characters are they, are they still somehow in, in in the story of oup is it is it's going on today in 2014 that's a very good question and 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 the the easy answer for me is to say you should read volume two and ah. volume three of the uh, uh of of the history which takes us up to 1970 and and then await volume four which will take us up to well probably into the, the 21st century that said there are kind of continuities um and i think it is interesting how at least i, I can't speak for the, the very contemporary but how oup has always been shaped by larger-than-life individuals who have in some way made quite radical changes but have done so by drawing on or invoking Mm. the past uh, and invoking some kind of uh, return to to essential values as far as as the press is concerned. So those those myths I've been talking about, and I don't mean myths in that they're they're not true, I mean just in terms of stories that have potency and, Mm. and cultural power, those are still, uh, they were as potent in the 1580s, uh, in the 1670s, in the 1750s, and beyond. Mm-hmm. And I think there, there is a certain amount of institutional memory. That said, it can be very tempting, and again, this was an assumption I had when I, I joined the project, it can be tempting to see the, the grand edifice in uh, Great Clarendon Street and project back and look for a, a straight line that brings you to a single point of origin and actually particularly in volume one trying to find that point of origin is not straightforward because I've already used the term university press quite often but actually it's a term that in the volume I glossed quite carefully and significantly or at least to me we didn't capitalize it because I wanted to draw a distinction between the university press in our volume and then the university press as a corporate body in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries Um, and university press as a term isn't really used to talk about the um, printing at Oxford until 
the late 18th century anyway. If, if we're thinking about um, how, how Oxford imagines and thinks about and represents, represents printing, there's a, there's a fabulous painting, isn't there, which you talk about, by Robert Streeter. Yes. Truth Descending Upon the Arts and Sciences, the kind of, kind of title people don't give paintings um, today <laughs> anymore. Robert Streeter, Truth Descending Upon the Arts and Sciences, and it's on the ceiling of the Sheldonian Theatre, that late 17th century building, 1669, Christopher Wren building, mm-hmm. I think. I know, pod listeners, you're, you're, you've got this coming through your ears rather than your eyes at the moment, but it's a fabulous painting. Ian, can you just... And it's also a baffling painting. I mean, there aren't many allegorical representations of printing, are there? I don't no, think. no, in fact, the... Um, just to give it a little bit of context, so this is the Sheldonian Theatre um, built in the late 1660s, and it was designed, it was, there was a, a need for an institutional space, a space that could be used for university ceremonies. But when they were thinking about building that space, they wanted somewhere that they could have a printing business and somewhere they could keep their printing presses and their printing equipment. So the Sheldonian was built with two purposes in mind. For anybody who has actually been to the Sheldonian, you will see that it is very well designed as far as a ceremonial space is concerned. It is appallingly designed as a uh, a place of um, conducting printing. Not an obvious print shop, is it? No, no. And actually, the uh, one of the um, uh, the chapter by Martin Old uh, mm-hmm. in the volume on the the day to day running of the press, he's, he he shows just how the kind of compromises that the the printers had to make in order to be able to uh, um, use the building structure in an effective way. And paper was hanging, uh, probably put up in when was hung in the hall while to dry while the uh, um, ceremonies weren't going on. The presses were in the basement the uh, compositors were working was probably in the outer corridors of the on, on the, uh, the ground floor and then when the university was having its ceremonies all that equipment had to be shifted out of the way so and so that, uh, that, 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 that there's an awkwardness about the the kind of practical demands of running a printing house something that has to be hidden away when the uh, when the, the graduating presence precisely arrives. but but that but also that this grand ceremonial building which is the university uh, on display actually isn't a practical building as far as university printing is concerned and that, and that that you have this sort of tension or gap between the vision of of, of scholarship and scholarly uh, um, publication and then the actual practicalities which involve real human beings and real equipment and, and inky fingers and inky fingers and, and candles and cold cold nights and uh, uh, and risk of fire and all those kind of things that, that, that an uh, inking ball soaked in urine is that true does that, that really happen that that would have happened that would have happened so there would have been an interesting odor yeah. In in the Sheldonian on, on, on certain days. The, in the end, actually, the, because of the, these problems, the, it didn't take very long for the press to actually uh, move its operations out into the courtyard area, into new buildings. The Sheldonian is built, and on the ceiling, there's this magnificent multi panelled ceiling by uh, Robert Streeter. And one panel shows the this picture of a series of figures and in the top right of this pic this is uh, illustrated in color in the in the volume it's the first time this has been illustrated in any history of the uh, uh, of printing at oxford the top right uh, we have um, there are quite a few bare-breasted women in here as as one might expect of a, a sort of allegorical representation of, of truth and and so on top right we have uh, this woman whose uh, head is turned away from us yeah, we can't see her face fully can no we? and uh, um, she has in uh, one hand, there, there is a little poem which um, accompanied the, the ceiling printing, who held in one hand a box of letters, that is a type case, and a form, a form being the, uh, the metal frame in which type would be locked up, uh, ready to be printed, that's ready set in the other hand. Next to her, where lest the printing press should vacant lie are several damp sheets hanging up 
to dry. There are lots of reasons why this is un- striking and unusual, partly because there aren't many personification of printing. And what's interesting here, there are no books. It's, not, it's, it's about the, um, the equipment of printing. It's about the, the hidden equipment of printing, in a sense, the, 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 the type and the forms. Her face is turned away, she's holding these objects quite awkwardly, they're unusual objects, and she's tucked away in the in this particular panel, she's towards the back. And and I wondered whether that... And Streeter is interesting, he was a court painter, so he was somebody who was used to treading that line between artisan and artist. And, and I wonder whether there is an, an element there where he is recognising that printing too is walking a line. Mm. We're printing in a, uh, in a university context. On the one hand, it's there to support truth. It's there to uh, enable the generation of, of, of new knowledge and to banish vice and, and ignorance. But it's also something that requires human labour and human ingenuity in a, in a kind of practical sense. And I, I find it a fascinating uh, image in that respect in that I think it shows, or it seems to capture exactly that, that what I was talking about before, where the printing press equipment was in the Sheldonian but was tucked around its margins, had to work within the parameters and then was rushed out of sight when the university wanted to uh, show itself. That's absolutely right. There's a wonderful sense of, yes, yes, the type and the form not really fitting easily um, in, into the kind of world of allegorical depictions of truth and art and science. It's a fantastic painting. So either Google it, um, Robert Streeter, Truth Descending, or come to the Sheldonian and have a look. That would be yes, art. although actually it is, it, neither is straightforward it, um, because the, if you Google it, you get the whole uh, painting and trying to identify this panel is quite difficult and even if you are in the Sheldonian you you almost need to lie down on the floor mm. and look straight up and then take a while to yeah. uh, um, so the best thing to do actually is to when you're in the Sheldonian get the guidebook yeah. or indeed Buy purchase a, a copy of uh, a reasonably priced copy uh, of uh, uh, of our volume. Ian um, we're rattling to a conclusion but there's one more topic I wanted to ask you about which is new year books which are a particular Oxford phenomenon or a significant Oxford phenomenon? Can you can you talk to us a little bit about New Year books? Yes, New Year books are they they they're a subgenre of Oxford's classical publication, and they they burst into life under John Fell, uh, and they uh, last into the early eighteenth century. And what they were, and, and here I'm drawing on the work uh, of David Money and to Will Poole, and these the New Year books were books that were published annually they were learned books and their intention was to be uh, they would be to distribute they would be distributed at new year as well as being uh, sold on each uh, was an edition, and they were plainly presented these were not they were not grand books they were always in a small format and they there was little if any commentary and it was either a, a classical test or a, a patristic test and fell himself explains that they were um, the works were um, and i 'm quoting here from David money intended to reciprocate the gifts and good wishes he received from his pupils at that time of year, and a large number of copies were indeed given as presents to students and academic colleagues. What we don't know, but we can surmise, is that Fell probably himself closely supervised the uh, selection of these editions and then the uh, uh, production of them. And it shows in a way, aside that perhaps is, is, I think is now gone, but the way in which the press was a learned press uh, or was producing learned works that could have international impact, but was also a local press. Mm. And so that Fell was able to bring to it, and after all he was he was uh, instrumental in, in managing it at this time, but even after 
he was doing that, that this tradition continued. You were able to bring, it was like a kind of Oxford monograph series before uh, that series was set up, but something much more modest in a way and, and produced every year, and, but a way of being able to produce works by uh, students and fellows for an internal market, but then also would have some kind of interest and uh, marketability beyond mm-hmm. Oxford. Um, Ian, thank you very much for um, dropping by and talking to us about your magnificent um, History of OUP, Volume 1, Beginnings in 1780. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Ian and I are off to the Sheldonian Theatre to lie on the ground and to look up at Robert Streeter's painting, I think. I will be back um, with another podcast soon, thinking about the history of the book at Oxford. Um, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.